Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's JPEG podcast. We're so happy to have you. Uh, today, we have a great discussion with our editor-in-chief, Dr. Paula Hillard. And oh, yeah, I'm Nicole Tyson, hosting this JPEG podcast for April 2021. Today, we will be talking about a couple great books, one we've just read called The Midnight Library, and a book recommendation for an upcoming book for next month's podcast. And today we'll be discussing articles and letters and replies to the letters about endometriosis, a really comprehensive and thorough discussion today. And we'll also be reviewing a great article discussing malarian anomalies in women with an already diagnosed renal anomaly. So welcome and please enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome, Dr. Hillard. It's great to have you back on our podcast today. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Good. And I think um, I really, really enjoyed uh, talking to you or talking um, to you about your suggestion with the Midnight Library, the book we were proposing to read from last month's podcast by Matt Haig. Um, I'll let you go first because I, I love the book. But I, I love the book too. Say. I really did. Um, I, uh, I also recommended it to my son, the Buddhist monk. And uh, he enjoyed reading it, thought it was was good and not uh, too superficial. He thought there was there was meat to it, which is which is good. Um, the story is about a, a character, a woman who is near 30 in age. And one of the things that struck me the very most, this young woman is um, is very depressed, very sad and very depressed. Her life is going very poorly. And and one of the best things about the book was the portrayal of depression and how just nothing matters and you don't want to get up and it doesn't, you know, wouldn't, the world would be a better place if you weren't around. And that description of the feeling of how it feels to be really depressed, I thought was so powerful. But the rest of the book goes on and this woman finds herself, she she tries to commit suicide or attempts suicide and finds herself in this in-between place, um, in between life and death. And the place is a library and the library has books that each book is a choice that she might have made um, in her life. So had her life been different had she chosen to stay with the band that she was a part of um <laughs> right. had she chosen to be an olympic swimmer what her life would have been like and snippets of uh, reminding us all that we have lots of choices and i thought it was was well written and uh, i i enjoyed it very much what are your thoughts i yeah i i really liked it i think um, you speak to a lot of the, the feelings that I had about making choices and some of the consequences. I think, you know, we always think about the grass is greener, but this one showed some consequences of being the rock star or being the Olympic swimmer um, or choosing a different guy and their life together. So I, I think we don't know the story had we chosen some different journey. Um, I, I thought it was such a really great way to talk about this popular topic of mindfulness, right? About trying to be present. Like this book is all about regrets and stress about the future. And I won't give away the ending, but you know, really it's all about the present and how, you know, how you make those choices. And I loved it. I thought it was just a great, I, I want to share it with like all the young people who are trying to find their journey in life right yeah. now. Um, it was so inspiring in that way. And I think, 
you and I were talking earlier about getting older and sleep. I think it's good as we get older to think about those things too, because the book of library regrets grows bigger as you get older because you have more chances to do that. Yep. So it was a great book. I loved it. It's a very quick read. Um, so it's perfect just for like a summer beach day or something like that. Um, and then for our next book, which was such a good suggestion, I actually have this book already, but you recommended um, The Vanishing Half. Tell us what, why you recommended that one. So this is The Vanishing Half, a novel by Britt Bennett. And um, I just finished it. I could not put it down. It's um, It's gotten a lot of press and and publicity. Um, um, Barack Obama said it's one of his favorite books. It's being talked about in book clubs left and right. There's an ACOG section two for the Bay, uh, District nine section two, which is the, the San Francisco Bay area, is having an online book club event this Thursday at seven o'clock and, and uh, people could, uh, ACOG members could, uh, could join that. But, but it is, it is well, very well done um, about uh, twins. And uh, one twin um, up and leaves the other twin. And it's all about the lives of the, the separate lives of the, the different twins, the two twins. So well-written and uh, well worth reading. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll talk more about it at our next podcast, which is coming soon. Um, well, this one, let's start and dive in this. So this podcast um, is going to include a couple articles, both from February and April, because we really wanted to highlight some discussion of endometriosis. Um, the first thing I was hoping we could talk about is the article titled The Prevalence of Endometriosis in Adolescents with Pelvic Pain, a Systematic Review. And this was completed by Dr. Hirsch Dillon. Smith, uh, Kuttner, Yap, and Creighton from the UK, so doctors. And it really was a comprehensive systematic review for over eight years, July or June 2011 to July 2019, looking at about 1,200 participants across 19 sites and studies. And it really added insight to the use of using imaging modalities to diagnose endometriosis um, and perhaps its value as an alternative. It, they don't really talk about adjunct, but as an alternative to laparoscopy. And I think the interesting sort of nutshell summary that came out of this is that the prevalence of highly suspected endometriosis based on MRI imaging was 17 out of 22 patients or about 77% using traditional features for things like endometrioma and adenomyosis. And this, I think this really highlighted some, you know, times to think in that it, you know, it really compares to looking at patients who were diagnosed with endometriosis, which was sort of their control group in this systematic review of 27 out of 34. So they saw endometriosis via laparoscopy in about 79%, and they felt that MRI was sensitive enough to see it as 77%, so very comparable. Um, so I, you know, I'm definitely interested. I was actually looking forward to this podcast because I wanted to think I wanted to see what you think about this role of MRI in diagnosing endometriosis sort of in modern day evaluation. So I think it's an interesting concept and I, I enjoyed the article. I think it was an important one. And as we look at it, we have thought about laparoscopy as the gold standard for making the diagnosis. And I had thought, and actually I think still do thought, think that um, 
that there is value in confirming a diagnosis in someone who is quite young, uh, someone who has many, many years, not only of reproductive life, but years of life in general, um, to manage what may be um, pain. And often for our patients, it's pain that we're dealing with. Um, so I think that that there is value in a real confirmation, looking at what we are seeing and then managing it with ablation. Um, so that's one of the opportunities that laparoscopy affords. But the other opportunity that, that Nicole, I know you um, understand and agree with and talk to our patients about a lot is that the additional value of a patient under anesthesia is that we have the opportunity to use a hormonal um, adjunct or a hormon hormonal form of treatment in the form of the levonorgestrel IUD. And the, the vast majority of patients that ultimately come to laparoscopy to confirm or refute endometriosis, um, I think benefit from uh, having an IUD and particularly in relatively young teens and those who are not yet sexually active, um, that opportunity to have the IUD inserted under anesthesia is something that the kids themselves jump at. Now, parents may be a bit taken aback and, and a little more wary of a surgical procedure. Um, one of the things that's always argued about MRI compared to ultrasound is that it's much more expensive um, than ultrasound, but there are also potential risks of surgery. So, so we are um, appropriately cautious in our recommendations for surgery, but I think there is really some value in a surgical confirmation. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I agree with everything that you said. And I, what I really kind of like about these endometriosis articles that, that we're publishing in the journal is that I think it highlights the need to keep our eyes open for endometriosis. That again, this is this under-recognized, under-diagnosed, under-treated um, problem for teens. So just keeping it on our radar. And maybe if they are, you know, not wanting surgery, not wanting an IUD, not wanting treatment, that we maybe have another less invasive modality. And, and surgery itself is, can be expensive too, if you think about MRI's expense. So exactly, I, I think that has come a long way. And you know, MRIs are not as difficult to get or as expensive as they used to be 10 and 15 years ago. So it's sort of like ordering FSH and LH in the olden days, right? It was just so expensive and it took forever to get back. And so... Times are changing. They are changing. Which is nice. They are changing. But so I think important to know that that MRI is is something we should keep in mind. Um, I I still am a little bit wary of MRI and its sensitivity because the majority of kids that I scope that we scope for pelvic pain and possible endometriosis don't have deep infiltrating endometriosis. They don't have endometriomas. They have small implants. And even, you know, the, the uh, vesicular or red or white lesions that we're not even sure look like typical endometriosis that we biopsy thinking maybe it is and maybe it isn't. Um, and so I would wonder in a population of, of patients with um, minimal or mild endometriosis, how sensitive MRI would be without an endometrioma. Yeah, no, that's 100% true. And picking up like little peritoneal windows and the sort of subtle findings we see in our, our young stage one, stage two girls. 
Plus, obviously, these radiologists are uniquely sophisticated and trained. Um, so that's a whole nother story, like looking at who's looking at these images and a consistent um, person looking for features of endometriosis. That may not be sort of universally applied across all radiologists. Well, it, it, it uh, brings up that we need to continue our dialogue with our colleagues in radiology and we can learn from them and they can learn from us as well. Right. So that, that dialogue is, is definitely worth it. You mentioned keeping endometriosis on our radar. I think in general, those of us who do PAG and see a lot of these girls are pretty aware of endometriosis as a as a possibility, um, and and here the lesson is not so much for us, but maybe a little more for our colleagues in general OBGYN or our colleagues in pediatrics, who may not be as sensitive to the fact that severe dysmenorrhea or pelvic pain, even that is not cyclic, uh, can be endometriosis. So to me it's less preaching to the choir and more um, talking with, not preaching at, but talking with our colleagues <laughs> in pediatrics and, and uh, general obstetrics and gynecology about the fact that yes, indeed, teens can have endometriosis um, and what it looks like in teenagers as well. Um, you know, when, when I see patients who've already had a laparoscopy and the patient is told she doesn't have endometriosis, I wonder how familiar the surgeon was with the fact that it, it, the lesions can look different in the process, probably the process of evolving, but the atypical lesions, the white lesions, the red lesions, the, the uh, vesicular or clear lesions uh, that we're more likely to see in teens rather than the, the powder burn lesions. Yeah, super good point. And I would champion um, teaching and working with our GI colleagues too, because I think we have a lot yep. of overlap with our, our mutual patients. Um, and those ones maybe we can capitalize when they're in the operating room for endoscopies. Um, perhaps we could also do a laparoscopy and have sort of that collaborative diagnostic opportunity. Good so, things to think about. Yeah, that's a good point. And so in, in light of all this good endometriosis talk, and I think like you and I, I mean, there's just different angles and approaches and everyone's trying to optimize the care of these patients of ours. Um, there was a nice letter in the editor, um, a nice letter to the editor in April edition regarding the surgical management of superficial peritoneal endometriosis um, in response to that article by Dr. Lawford and Einerson. And so um, Drs. Young, Sunervo, and Arbuck wrote a letter to you regarding surgical management of superficial endometriosis. And they really, um, the article itself, just looking back, was talking about not pursuing extensive peritoneal stripping. I mean, it was very specific. Um, and this letter uh, to the, to basically the authors and to you basically said that the ASRM, um, their opinion on endometriosis and infertility states there's no role of hormonal suppression for endometriosis associated infertility and surgical management's the key to you know, improve future fertility. It's very focused on fertility and that we should talk about post-operative hormonal suppression to improve pain in addition to surgery, but we need to talk about it in a different context than fertility. 
Um, and I, I know you have thoughts on this, so I'm just going to give the Laffer and Einerson response to that as well. And then you can tell me and tell the listeners. Um, so, Nicole, just just a second, because I want to be sure yeah. that everybody really um, is familiar with and, and remembers the case report uh, from uh, Einerson and, and Laufer, which basically was a patient who had uh, recurrent pain, had had a couple of previous um, surgical procedures, um, including uh, having um, peritoneal stripping, and was told, the patient evidently was told that um, the surgical procedure would be curative. And unfortunately, the patient continued to have pain, had yet another laparoscopy, and um, and recurrent or persistent endometriosis was found at the subsequent uh, laparoscopy, along with lots of adhesions. So the the original case report was essentially a caution, saying that this is a procedure that was described initially for individual for adults. Uh, adult women, and uh, that we should really be cautious in adopting this, in concluding that a peritoneal stripping was curative, um, and just was urging caution. And I, it, it really resonated with me because I think that caution is well merited. I think we need to be very, very careful, and we need to be sure we're not doing more harm than good to our patients. So, that's that was the original article. Then the the letter to the editor and and the authors said, you know, we don't know about the effect on uh, of just ablation on on fertility, and I think to me that was a, a major point that wasn't emphasized enough. I I'm not sure these are really the same populations. The population of adult women with infertility and maybe pain compared to our population, which is not gonna be fertility as a major concern, but pain as a major concern. And future fertility, is, as you know, Nicole, is, is often a concern of our patients, but that's the future. <laughs> it's not right now, and right, right now is pain. So, yeah. Exactly. And I, and I think that you just spoke to Dr. Loughran Ironerson's response was basically they were saying, you know, we, we were speaking to a case, like you said, of using excisional surgery for the management of very superficial disease. Um, and, and I think everybody's speaking the same language. What impact does that have doing peritoneal stripping on future fertility um, in a teenager? So I think, you know, I think there was like really good uh, dialogue about what we're looking for with our management and our surgeries. And there's a very, very significant difference between an adolescent with endometriosis and an adult and in people who take care of these patients, as you alluded to before, which we're preaching to the choir here on the podcast for all the PAG listeners, is, it, is management's very different in an adolescent than an adult. Now, sometimes it takes forever for they, them to get diagnosed. So sometimes they're one in the same, True. right? By the time they True. get diagnosed. You know, the other issue is the hormonal management afterwards. And, and again, in our adolescent population, I think it makes perfect sense given potentially years between the time of diagnosis and uh, the time when fertility is a concern during which time contraception is also a concern for many of our patients. So the hormonal management that we are 
are giving to our patients after their surgical procedure um, has a dual purpose. It is uh, not only potentially suppressing um, and preventing progression, um, maybe it doesn't completely stop the endometriosis. Maybe it does. We don't really know that. Um, but it it also functions as contraception, whether we're talking the levonorgestrel IUD or whether we're talking uh, birth control pills or whatever hormonal management we're talking about serves the other purpose of contraception. And we all know that our patients uh, sometimes our patients come to us before they become sexually active, but they certainly don't all <laughs> choose to come to us saying, I'm going to become sexually active. So um, that secondary purpose of the hormonal management um, for pelvic pain and, and endometriosis is something that we really have to keep in mind for our patients. Right. Because many of our patients, most I would say, are not seeking fertility at this time. We're seeing them for, <laughs> for different Absolutely. reasons in PAG than they perhaps are seeing in REI. So, I mean, I think in summary, sort of the takeaways I took sort of from the article and for the compilation of these letters is that surgery really at this time is still key for diagnosis, particularly in teens who are more likely to have earlier stage endometriosis and can have optimum hormonal therapy with the IUD, as you brilliantly mentioned, I agree. Um, and maybe MRI will be a future useful modality, particularly if patients have masses or adenomyosis, which I do see more and more comments from radiologists on this lately over the years. Um, I think the, the letters sort of astutely pointed out that medical therapy of endometriosis may not improve fertility, which surgery does, but we don't really agree and know that excisional, I mean, we do know that excisional surgery hasn't actually been shown to be more effective than ablative surgery and um, we, need to, we need to look at our adolescents in a different light than we look at an adult with endometriosis. I think that would sort of be the nugget nutshell summary. Thank you. No, nope. I more think that's add. good. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've covered endometriosis, but I think those are, I think they're good discussions and it gets, you know, it gets us sort of thinking more about the future too. And then the next article I really enjoyed because I, I taught, I saw the, um, there was an abstract presentation at NASPAG and I think people really enjoyed this article because this is something we teach and talk about and work with our residents and, and medical students all the time is characterizing the prevalence of malarian anomalies uh, with patients with the renal anomalies and vice versa. And that that's basically the title of the article and it was by Dr. Um, O'Flynn, O'Brien, and Batia, and Homofar, Dr. Gong, Winston, Gerber, and Dr. Dietrich from Texas. So a big group and lots of good statisticians and tables and um, figures. But basically, this, this article reviewed that we know 7% of reproductive age women in our general population have a malarian anomaly. And we know early diagnosis is key to help prevent concerns later in life. And there's obviously a variety of anomalies. Some are obstructive, some are non-obstructive. Knowing ahead of time is very helpful to optimize pregnancy outcome and counseling and expectations, let alone you know, reducing pain and ER visits and misery. And so I, I was teasing earlier that I just love the opportunity to talk about embryology. So you can't go without a malarian discussion without reviewing embryology. And they actually did it in this article in a really nice, concise way. So it's useful to share perhaps with medical students or younger residents um, in this light. So the Wolfian known as the mesonephric duck comes from the urogenital ridge 
And then at six weeks, they induce the formation of the malarian or paramesonephric ducts. These ducts then form the uterus, cervix, fallopian tubes, and upper two-thirds of the vagina, whereas the wolfian or mesonephric ducts give rise to the ureteric bud, which together with the metanephric mesenchyme differentiates into the kidneys. And these are obviously complexly interrelated, these primordial structures. So the developmental problems in the GU system are frequently a sign of associated defect in the, the um, other. So we always see that these correlations in renal anomalies among our patients with malarian anomalies, and we quiz our residents all the time um, that what's the incidence, you know, what are, what are we finding? And they really have a broad range of renal anomalies correlating with malarian anomalies, depending on the malarian anomaly, this article really describes that, that range from um, almost 20% to over 90%. Um, and when you look at, well, what's the incidence if you have a renal anomaly, what's the incidence of having a malarian anomaly? There's really only one study from the 60s that gives us about 37%. I think we all sort of throw that number around because that's kind of what we've seen and what we know. Um, so I thought this study was just a nice little angle to look at the prevalence of malarian anomalies in patients already diagnosed with a renal anomaly. So they did a, a, about a um, five-year retrospective part, chart review, and they have really, really nice um, pictures depicting kind of the percentage of malarian anomalies with the renal anomalies. And interestingly, about 30% of the malarian anomalies were just incidentally identified um, you know, probably in the urology department, running through the, ultra, you know, the ultrasound features, looking at the uterus. And the renal dysgenesis patients were identified with a malarian anomaly at a younger age, like seven and a half, where those with agenesis were diagnosed a little older, like at nine. And probably because the, the uh, um, dysgenesis patients were really part of a syndrome. So I think they had a more, more global look at their anatomy. So, you know, in a nutshell, they came out with about 30% will have a uterine anomaly if they've already got some sort of renal anomaly diagnosis. Um, and I think there, there may be some significant limitations to this study in that it was an underestimation because there was a lot of patients with unknown malarian anomaly status. So, you know, add back some of those patients, I think we would have seen even maybe closer to about 37%. So I thought it was a nice, a nice little study. What, what do you think, Dr. Hill? What was your sort of takeaway from... This I completely ag agree with your your summary and and assessment. I love the article. Um, one of our fellow residents here at Stanford, uh, Dr. Amita Ganti, uh, had looked at the same question in our population, and had looked at how many of the patients who initially came to us had had additional imaging, or we commented on the imaging about the the kidneys. Uh, and also looked at the patients who were seen originally by urology for renal issues and how many of them looked at the Mullerian system. And the bottom line was that we didn't do a perfect job of noting the status of, of the kidneys, but we were up there. <laughs> there is room for improvement. Uh, the urologists, there's a lot of room for improvement. And, and here again, calling for communication with our colleagues, not only in pediatric urology, some of these diagnoses are made prenatally. And so our colleagues in, right. in right. 
maternal fetal medicine and general obstetrics and gynecology may have this finding. And the point then is that letting the parents know that at some point down the road, this should be looked at. So parents need that information um, that sometime around the time of the best time would be around the time of puberty, um, but other imaging at some point may look. Now, the problem with, with looking at looking for a uterus that's going to be pretty small anyway in a, a small child is not always easy to image. And so um, one of the things that was described in this article was a, a, a citation about the proposal that parents be informed, but that the definitive imaging be done closer to puberty uh, to look at the Mullerian system. And it would be so wonderful for these patients, particularly those with an obstructing anomaly, if this were diagnosed prior to menarche, prior to the first period. The girls with obstructive, uh, obstructed hemivagina with ipsilateral renal anomalies, the OVIRA um, girls, almost universally, not quite fortunately, but almost universally come to us after they've been having pain for quite a while and they have a big mass that's hematocolpos and hematometra. And those girls typically have evidence of retrograde menses and endometriosis and sometimes adhesions. And, you know, it's, it's a problem at that point. They have a lot of pain um, and when we make that diagnosis of a, a diadelphus uterus and, and an obstructing uh, uh, longitudinal vaginal septum, uh, then we always at that point will look for the kidneys. We will we'll really want to, to be sure. And, and again, it's been a new diagnosis for a few of the patients with OVIRA that I've seen. The renal anomalies have been a new diagnosis. Um, so getting those girls before they have months and months of pain, before they have a big mass, before they have endometriosis, before they have potential impact on their fertility, um, making the diagnosis and, and um, addressing it, uh, particularly the obstructive anomaly. So very important article and uh, very important that we talk to our colleagues and, and continue to note this association based on the embryology, as you say. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. I think this actually makes me think about an opportunity to do like a QI or QA yes. project, right? Across yes. departments, I think that would actually be fun for a fun project that would help our young patients Absolutely. very much. Well, I think that covers it. I thank you for joining me today, Dr. Hill. My for pleasure. This fun podcast. And. Mm -hmm.